Good morning, church. Glad to see you. I'm grateful for Scott's prayer. I think it's good for us to take time to think on sin. I think it's good for us to realize the damage, the destruction it causes, um, but then also to realize the freedom we have in Christ. Um, but because we have such sinful hearts, we also, have, we also have to be cautious of that freedom being twisted into something it's not real. And we so easily can then make uh, what seems to be freedom from sin back into sin. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today, but that's not the focus. Uh, the focus is the Word of God. We're, we're in a, a brief series that we're going to have beginning of every year um, as a young church Still trying to figure a lot of things out. Uh, we know what Scripture calls us to. We see this is what we are and this is what we do because of who we are. Uh, but there's a lot of methodology and there's a lot of contextualizing to the culture without conforming to the culture that needs to be done. And, uh, and so that requires more than anything else prayer and commitment, devotion to the Word of God. And as the Crossing Church grows to be an old church one day... Developing identity and contextualizing a culture will never stop being a part of what we are. And so we still will, will need this devotion to prayer and to the Bible. And so for every year, it's our hope that for every year, for as long as this church is in existence, we will look first thing at prayer and at the Word. What is it? What does it mean? What, what's the need for it? And, and then how do we rightly respond when considering the Word of God, when considering, when considering prayer. And so I would guess that no one in here feels as if you pray or read the Bible too much or, or you feel like you read it enough even. And so I think it's good that we not feel shame or guilt whenever we consider how little we read the Bible. And it's, it's very telling of how little you know about the Bible if you allow yourself to just be buried in shame about it. And, or to be motivated by that guilt to read the Bible. And so we need to work through some of what, what is this requirement on Christians? Is it even that? And then, and then how should we respond to it? And so I, I want to just walk through some things. Um, but ultimately, we're talking about communication with our Creator. Communication in prayer and in reading Scripture. Last week, Jared preached on prayer. This week, we're going to focus on Scripture and, and we, when we think about the Bible, I think often things are misquoted. Things are said after the phrase, the Bible says, and it's not even in the Bible. And so I want to do a quick little quiz, if you'll, if you'll go along with it. It's a true or false, so it's easy. And please don't answer out loud because it could be embarrassing. We're going to start with phrases in the Bible. True or false, this is in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. False. It's not in there. Cleanliness is next to godliness. False. God works in mysterious ways. Now, while this may be true, God also works in obvious ways. That phrase is not in Scripture, so that's false. God won't give you more than you can handle. Now, this has been made into songs. People say it all the time. Anytime you're struggling, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. And that phrase is not in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says something similar. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but temptation is not the same as trial. 
Now, God's always going to offer this way out of falling into sin, and that's Jesus. He's the way out. The freedom from sin is Jesus. But there's no promise in Scripture that it's not going to be difficult. In fact, we see evidence in Scripture that sometimes you get more than you can handle. There's death. There's, There's people today who are suffering and dying, and they're Christians. Is that not God giving them more than they can handle? Sometimes the best thing for us is for God to take us out of this world. That's, that's true. So those are some phrases that were all false. <laughs> true or false concepts found in Scripture. Sinner's prayer. False, not, not in there. Asking Jesus into your heart as a concept in Scripture. You, don't, you can't find it. The seven deadly sins. Nope, the Catholics swear it's in there. Pleading the blood of the Lamb. It's not in the Bible. The pre-tribulation rapture as seen by the Left Behind series. We won't, we won't go into that one. There's some, some really hard opinions on that. But as far as I can tell in my interpretation of Scripture, it's not in there. It's definitely Nicolas Cage is not in there. Alright, so not only are there concepts and phrases that aren't in Scripture that we tend to give credit to the Bible, there's also a lot of misquoting and misapplication. So just to name a few, pride comes before the fall. is something we say a lot. It is true, I believe. But the proverb says, pride comes before destruction. And pride before the fall is a misquote. It's not in there. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Also, very true concept. The Scripture talks a lot about disciplining your children is good for them. But the phrase, spare the rod, spoil the child, is not in Scripture. Where two or three gather in my name, I will be there in their midst. Jesus says this. It's in the Bible, Matthew 18, 20. However, the context of this is not Sunday night service when only two people show up and the pastor uses it as a joke. Well, two more are gathered. Jesus is with us. It, I don't know why I did a country accent. No offense to my country friends. <clears throat> I was going to try another accent. just to, All right, let's move on. The context of Matthew 18, if, if you've read that, that chapter, is discipline. It's church discipline. So two or more gathered to call out a brother or sister who's in sin. Jesus is for that. He's with them in that. Is God there when it's just you by yourself? Yes. Omnipresence. Have you ever heard of this? He's everywhere, always. It's not limited to only if two or three are gathered. So that's taken out of context. It's a bad application. There's many more that we could go to. And the point I think has been made that we cannot say things about the Bible that we don't know is true about the Bible, but we often do. And then the reason I think we do is because we don't really know it. So maybe you were surprised by some of those. It threw you off and you're feeling guilty because you don't know your Bible. Don't be guilty. Believe the gospel. Feel the sweetness of God's grace and now desire to know it more. And then my fear, my greater fear is that some of you knew all of that. None of that was surprising to you. And right now you're patting yourself on the back because you got them all right. Your pride is sinful in that. So you may know the gospel. You may know the word of God. But you're certainly not applying it right now. You certainly don't know it in a way that is good for you. So I think we're all suffering from this lack of understanding, this lack of right application. 
when we consider Scripture, I don't think we truly delight in it. And I think it's the delight in God's Word that's for our good. And so we know books and we know song lyrics and we know TV shows and we know movies. And we, we, we know those things because we read them and we listen to them and we watch them over and over again because we delight in them. We, I know for a fact my missional community quotes the office more than they quote the Bible. I'm not excited about that. But I know why they quote the office is because they like it. They enjoy it. I should say we, because I quote it pretty often. It's easy to laugh those things off, but there's something that should weigh on us when we consider how that's true. And I'm not, I'm not just using the word we as a general thing. I'm talking about you and I'm talking about me. We take whatever sounds good and we call it truth. If someone says, well, the Bible says this and it sounds right, we just believe it. We make reference to it when it's convenient to us or when it proves our point, even if it's out of context. We choose parts to believe and live by and then we leave out other things and we pretend like they're not there or we use them to justify our disobedience. We fail to see the significance of knowing and understanding the Word of God. Instead, we depend on other information, on logic and on science and on personal experience as if that's a greater truth. I just want to emphasize to us this morning, before we get into delighting in the Word of God, the importance of the Word of God. Do we see what it is? Do we understand its value? I think the nominal Christian points to truth, and they, they, they'll even throw out a quote every once in a while, but they don't really know it and they don't read it. I think the legalists make it obligatory about rule following attempting to gain God's love rather than realizing they're, they're loved by God and, and having their obedience follow that with joy. And then I think there's this other group that idolizes knowledge without living it out. This building of arrogance, this entitlement that's destructive in ways that's, that they're not even seen until it's too late. As if this group knows the gospel, they know the word of God, but they don't apply it because they're afraid of being legalists. And I think that group describes most accurately the majority of the Crossing Church. I think that's our tendency. There's certainly legalists here. There's certainly those who are nominal in faith. But I think for the most part, most common among our people is this group that know, we know the Word of God. We know the Gospel. But we don't truly obey because we're lacking this this delight in the word that would draw us to obedience that would bring us joy in our obedience and I think that this fear of being who you used to be the legalist you used to be has become this this laziness and the sinful heart that we have replaces legalism with laziness this ungrateful fruitless knowledge of grace that feels like freedom but in fact we're still bound to our sin. I don't think this is a constant thing. I think there's times of repentance, but I think this is our tendency. This knowledge alone, this knowledge, this fathead of what the Bible says that leads us to believe we're spiritually mature despite our apathetic lives filled with sin. And that's not freedom. That's Satan winning. To get us to a point where we, we know the Word of God, but we're doing nothing about it. 
We know the calling on our lives to be missionaries, but we're not being missionaries. Instead, we see, we see our knowledge make us feel good about ourselves. Make us feel better than the rest. And our hope is, our hope as your leaders who feel the same conviction, our hope is that instead we'd see this knowledge drop down to belief and we find our freedom in, in a desire to obey that we would want people to know this gospel because we delight in it. Rather than being free to obey in uh, an obligation, we're free to obey with joy and delight in, in the obedience of God's commandments to eagerly live on mission and to with joy sacrifice in order for everyone to become disciples of Jesus. But because I think we're so in love with grace, we, we take things for granted and we lack this conviction. And I really I don't want it to be a shaming sermon. <laughs> I don't want us to leave here feeling down because of it. I want us to realize the goodness found in the Word of God and as a church, deny the false gospel that would say because of grace we don't have to obey. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 6. After talking much about grace and how it covers sin and how even more and more sin, there's more and more grace. He says in chapter 6 of Romans, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We have been buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we can no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin. Once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. It says, don't keep living as your old self. Don't keep submitting yourself to sin because your old self was crucified. And your new life is living for God. We live for God. Why are we living for God? Just as Christ lived for God. And we only do so through the, the death and the resurrection 
of Christ. And so realizing the gospel doesn't free us to continue in sin. So understanding the life we're living for ourselves is sin. We have to repent of that and live for God in obedience to God, understanding and knowing His words so that we can obey. Jesus was the Word made flesh and He is ultimate. These precepts, these concepts, these these reasons, this understanding, these opinions, these doctrines that we hold so dearly are not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. All that's drawn from the Word and Jesus is the Word made flesh. So we should desire to be men and women of the Word of God, repenting of all other ambitions, of all other pursuits, and submitting ourselves under the authority of the Word of God because that's all our truth, that's all our hope, that's all our freedom is dependent on. And so I ask you to join me in this repentance and seek out the value and uphold the value of these sacred Scriptures. Join me in delighting in the Word of God and seeing it as everything to us. It is ultimate, it's authoritative, and, and it plays a living, active, and life-changing role in our lives as individuals and in our life as the church and our identity as the church. And so to lay this out more clearly, I want to ask four questions and answer them. Really, it's two questions that have two parts. So the question one and two, what is it and why is it important? And question three and four, do we delight in it? And what is the result of that delight? So, first, what is it? And why is it important? So, to talk about what it is, we need to also talk about what it's not. So, I, I just asked the boys and, and I came up with some of myself. Just what are some ideas that the Bible isn't? It's not merely a history book. It's not a textbook or a reference book. It's not a self-help book. It's not simply a how-to book on life. It's not rules to follow. It's, it's not a roadmap to life. It's not a toolkit to fix life's problems. It's not a book of incantations that you repeat to produce some magical result just by vocalizing words. It's not an acronym that stands for the basic instructions before leaving earth. It's so much more than these things. If we make it about those things, we're making it about us. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about me. It's not man-centered at all. It's about a God who is God-centered. And because He's about Himself, it's for our good. So we reap the benefits. Certainly, there's history in the Bible. Certainly, there's concepts that we can see are rules. There's things that if we apply to our life, it would be for our good. But the, the idea is not that you find your place in Scripture and then you follow the map out. The idea is not that you see your specific problem in Scripture and you read about the solution to apply it to your life. The idea is that sin is the problem and Jesus solves it all. And when we believe the gospel as a story, the Bible's a story complete. You can't take pieces out and apply them. You can't say, this, this part's my favorite. I'll forget about the rest. You can't just read the New Testament because all of it together tells the story of redemption and the Bible together is a story that includes us, but it's not about us. So we can't make it those things because then we'll wrongly apply it to our lives. 
We can't take out all the the U's and put in Kendrick. You can't rewrite things and add to it and and make your opinion or new revelations or, or words that you heard specifically from God the same level of authority to Scripture. It's totally and completely set apart. It's the story of how we reap the benefits of a God who is about Himself. And we find that we have faith in a Savior who's revealed through Scripture by grace. It gives us life. There's nothing like it in all creation. It's incomparable. You can't say this is like the Bible. Without a doubt, it's the greatest story ever written. There's nothing that's more entertaining. There's nothing that's more comforting. There's nothing that's more encouraging. It's been translated into more languages than any other text ever written. It's been printed into more copies than any other book ever printed. You could stack up A Tale of Two Cities and Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and Harry Potter and Narnia and To Kill a Mockingbird and The Purpose Driven Life and every popular book you can imagine. And the Bible outnumbers them by billions. There's nothing compared to it. We can't compare it to anything. There's those who are eager for the Bible to be translated into their language just so they can understand it. There's those who would give their lives, who would be willing to be beat and killed in the street in order to get this book into the hands of people who don't have it. There's not another book like that. This book has value beyond what we understand in our privileged lives with dusty copies on our bookshelves. This book has so much significance that we need to slow down and realize the value of the Bible daily, moment by moment, to see that these words are more than ink on a page. The Bible is in its own category in every single way. It's totally set apart. It's the Holy Bible. It's something other than, different, better than anything else. And it bridges the gap between our reality and a better reality. It brings us closer to knowing our God because it's God revealing himself to us. It's the most real, most exciting, most true story ever told. Hebrews 4.12 says it's the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the divisions of the soul and the spirit, the joint and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible reads you more than you read the Bible. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. It gives you faith. It gives you belief just by hearing it. Nothing else can do that. It's more than stirring emotions or provoking your thoughts. It changes who you are. Scripture is able to do far more than intellectually advance you. Other books can do that. Scripture is able to do far more than give you some wisdom to quote. Other books can do that. In in John chapter 1, we see that Jesus is the Word made flesh. And so when we consider that Jesus is the Word made flesh, then we can consider that the Word we have as the Bible in every way is God giving Himself to us. Revealing Himself to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we have God. Because the Holy Spirit indwells in us and we have the Word of God printed on pages to read, we can understand our Creator and know Him through the Bible. 
That is incredible. If nothing else has blown your mind about this book, the fact that God is showing us who He is through words, condescending like He did through Christ to be man, condescending into our language so that we can know Him is incredibly significant. Not that we should worship the book. It's just a book, if not for the Holy Spirit giving us the the ability to understand this is our God. And and through the Bible, God has given us all we need. And so many people will claim to have um, visions and, and hear from God, and we don't want to discredit any of that. But we do know we have to hold those things to Scripture. We make sense of what people claim through Scriptures. We don't believe the Holy Spirit does not speak to His people. We don't believe God doesn't speak to the heart of His people. We, we think He does. Some denominations would say He doesn't. We think He does. But we know that ultimately, Scripture is their authority. And if it's contrary to Scripture, it's false. And I don't believe there's anything you're going to tell me that's for the church universal. And if it's contrary to Scripture, it's false. So if you did have something that's for the church universal, it's probably in Scripture. Thank you for quoting the Bible. And how we believe and approach Scripture speaks to who we are as Christians. Are we men and women of this book? Because people can lie, and people can manipulate, and people make mistakes. The Bible's true, and without hesitation, we can take it as truth. It's been given to us by God because it's all we need. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. Is a description Paul's writing to Timothy, a pastor, about what about the significance of this word. He says, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that man of God, that a man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is the ultimate need for us in this world. God is ultimate, and Scripture is Him giving Himself to us. It makes us wise for salvation through Christ. It has been breathed out by God, the creator of all things. It is profitable for teaching of what is right, for the exposing of what is wrong, for showing us how to correct the wrong, and for training us on how we are to live in the righteousness of Christ. And it is our ultimate authority that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So knowing this word, Understanding this word, cherishing this word, holding ourselves to this word completes us for good work. And so if we believe that God has given us this word for good, then we are to use it for good. And so what does that mean? That means it must be the Bible first and personal experience second. It means the Bible comes first and then books written even by the most scholarly gentlemen are second. Bible first, everything else is secondary. So consider this. God has given us his word to hold as truth as his people. Therefore, 
The reason we know God is faithful, good, loving, gracious, generous, and all else that we know about Him is the Bible, not our personal experience. Now, we will experience God to be those things, but that doesn't determine and define those things of God. Because the moment you experience something that's not comfortable or or good in your opinion, you discredit what you thought about God. You don't define what's good because the Bible has defined it. It's God. Your experience can confirm what's true, but it doesn't determine what's true. If it's contrary to Scripture, it's false. And the reason we know heaven is for real is not a book or a movie. It's the Bible. The reason we don't fear what Supreme Court rules is the Bible. The way we know what God is doing in our lives during times of suffering is the Bible. The way we have hope when things seem hopeless is the Bible. The way we know how to glorify God in our marriage, how to parent in a way that honors God, how to worship God in our schoolwork, how to get along with difficult people. The way we know how to make disciples is the Bible. It tells us everything we need. The reason we know what God is doing and how he's working and and what he wants and how he accomplishes what he set forth to accomplish is because he's told us in the Bible. It would be foolish and dangerous to give authority to anything else, whether it be your experience or logic or emotion, anything outside of Scripture. It's foolish and dangerous, but it happens often. God's word is all we need to know truth. And we need to know the Bible. But if we desire only to know the word of God or to study the word of God for the sake of personal uh, acceleration or or climbing the ladder of knowledge or, or wealth or health or whatever it is you're after. If we desire to know the word of God for those personal selfish reasons, then we're missing the point of the gospel. So you can point out the fault in everyone else. Well, he's just trying to get rich or he's just trying to uh, make people like him, but also notice your own fault. You're just trying to get knowledge. You're just trying to get fat-headed. You just want to prove that you know more than everyone else. That's me I'm talking about. We should delight in the Word of God in such a way that it changes who we are and not merely what we know or what we do. It changes who we are. So points or questions three and four. Do we delight in it? And what is the result of that delight? The biggest chapter in the biggest book of the most important book ever written is Psalm 119. I'm not saying bigger is better, but they would in Texas. The biggest chapter in the biggest book of the Bible is Psalms 119, and the entire chapter is about the Bible. It's not just about the commands and the precepts of God. It's about delighting in those commands and precepts. The psalmist clearly, deeply loves the Word of God. He speaks of his desire for it, delight in, study of, and he stores it up in his heart. He sings about it. He prays about it. He praises God for it. It's beautiful. We skip over it in our reading because it's so long. We just jump to the next chapter. But don't skip it. Take it day by day. Read it every day. It's wonderful. Just to read four verses out of it that give you an idea of what it's saying. Verse 77, let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 103, 
How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And I like honey, so that's meaningful. Verse 131. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. This guy loves the word of God. If, we, if I were to ask you reasons why you don't read your Bible, and I, I give these same excuses, you would probably say something like, I don't have enough time. I'm just too exhausted to focus and I wouldn't benefit from it. I don't really read anything that much, so I just not, I'm not a reader. I don't understand it, so I don't even want to try. And maybe you've said some of these, but I don't, I don't hear anyone using those excuses for reasons they don't watch Netflix or eat dinner or spend time with those they love or read sports articles or scrolling through Instagram or Facebook. Why do we do those things? Because we like to. We delight in them. Do you love the Word of God? Does it stir in you hope and joy? Do you find it brings life to you? Does it help you breathe? Does it lift your burdens? Do you long for it? Do you delight in it? John Piper says, Never reduce Christianity to a matter of demands and resolutions and willpower, which we do often. It's a matter of what we love. It's what we delight in. It's what tastes good to us. If we aren't delighting in the Word of God, I think it's probably because we don't really see what it is. And I don't know about you, but I've never, I've never been in love with a book of law. I've never, I've never longed to read my textbook or or dive into a good road map. I've never been eager to, to read a how-to instruction manual. If we wrongly see Scripture, we're not going to delight in it. We're not going to desire it. Now, I've been grateful for, for road maps and how-to books because they've helped me get where I'm going or, or accomplish what I want to accomplish. I've learned from textbooks. I enjoy some of them. But it's not a desire, a delight, a longing for them the way that the psalmist is talking about the Word of God here. Clearly, this is something different. So maybe you feel your Christian duty is to read the Bible regularly. But do you believe that it's true? And if so, do you delight in reading the Bible? To help better understand this, this delight. I want to talk about love. John 14, 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And later on in that same chapter in 24, he says, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but it's the Father's who sent me. In 1 John 5, 3. For this is love, the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Now, a legalist will read these verses and, and think to themselves, all right, let's do this. I want to love God, so let me follow these rules. Let's write them all out, and let's go after it. i got to make sure I love God. I've heard this out of the mouth of one of the, the most legalistic persons I know. I, I pray for his heart. He, he's convinced that Christianity is following law. And he said to me, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So why would you not commit your life to obeying commands? 
It's a misinterpretation. It's a twisting this into something it's not meant to be. It doesn't say, it doesn't say that you don't have to obey the God's commands to love Him. And it doesn't say in order to prove your love to God, obey His commands. It's neither show God you love Him by obeying Him or because you love God, you don't have to obey Him, which is what we make it into. Instead, loving Jesus is not equal to keeping commands. It proceeds and gives rise to the keeping of God's commands. Keeping His Word is the result of loving Him. It's not the same as loving Him. It's saying that if it's true that you love Jesus, you will long to, desire to, delight in obeying Him. So how do you know you love God? You obey Him. Now maybe your fear of legalism has swung the pendulum to the side of of freedom and grace that is actually sinful fruitlessness and, and you have a fat head full of knowledge of the gospel that you're not delighting in. And it's time now that we repent of that. If we truly want to be a people of God's word, then we have to take seriously this calling to preach it, to live by it. So if you're like me and processing through this, I ask the question, do I delight in the word of God? And if I'm honest, most of the time, I don't, I don't think I do. I think in times where I sit down and I, I slow down and I, I undo the to-do list in my head and I remember what the word of God is, then I can delight in it. But my day-to-day, my, my trying to minister to those who need minister, shepherd the hearts that need shepherd, the, the writing papers and reading textbooks, the, the loving my wife well and caring for my son's needs and the busyness of life drains me to the point where I forget the delight of salvation, the delight of the Word of God, the delight of knowing the God of creation, the fact that this is much bigger than my lifespan, the fact that this is much bigger than the stress I have today, the fact that God has given me all that I need to deal with everything in life. And it's not found in applying the, the bits and pieces of Scripture to my life. It's found in believing that it's true and delighting in that it's true. And so if we love God, we will see that it's satisfying to, to know, to read, to apply God's Word. The fulfillment that we're after is not found in the following of rules in an obligatory way. It's found in Obeying God in a way that we find satisfaction in it. We need not choose between glorifying God in our obedience or being satisfied. We see that we are satisfied when we glorify God. And He is glorified when we are satisfied in Him in our obedience. So practically, stop thinking of this book like it's just a book. Don't think little of the Bible. Realize that you can't think enough about the Bible. Remember, as you sit with yourself in the Word of God, remember the significance is not in finding your place in there. Remember that it's not trying to figure out 
who you are in Scripture. The significance is realizing it's authoritative for all of life. It's a story of the Gospel that incorporates you and you reap the benefits of, but it's not about you. It's about your access to salvation. It's about the one true God of creation. It's about you knowing our Father, the King of Kings. And let that stir in you delight. Let your heart be filled with the longing to know and delight in God. And to see the Bible as God giving Himself to us. And then, proactively, make time to read the Bible. Before reading, pray that God give you the grace to understand it and to delight in it. And after reading, pray that the Spirit lead you to right application. Memorize it. Meditate on it. It is life. Share it. Recite it. Write about it. Sing about it. Put it to a beat and dance to it. Let it deeply be ingrained into who you are, into every fiber of your being because it is your lifeblood. And let And let it be known that it's all about Jesus. He himself on the road to Emmaus met the disciples, went through scripture and said, look, it's all about me. The Bible in itself cannot become an idol. It can't be our everything. It's not only scripture. It is ultimately scripture. It is everything that has authority falls under the authority of scripture because Scripture is the Word of God. It is God revealed to us. It is what we know to be true, that God has sovereignly and inspired and supernaturally written out these words for us to have and to know Him through. And so let our hearts rejoice that we have such a treasure. And, And let us be a people who long to get it in the hands of all those who don't. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Like like never before, we see we should thank You for Your Word. Open our eyes to the things we still have yet to see. Open our ears to the things that we're missing. And let us see the value of knowing You. The value of having Your Word reveal to us who You are. And stir in our hearts affections for you, that we would long to just get alone with you, to know you better, to, to allow your word to be a food that we feast on, that you would grow us in maturity and not let us be fooled into thinking knowledge is maturity, but to show us the application of these truths and joy is how we see that we are growing in you. And so as we take time not just to read your word, but now as we sing Your Word, and as we, as we eat and drink of communion, let us be united with You by Your Word. And let our hearts praise You for the gracious, faithful God we know You are because of Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.